readers, my name is Jason Jefferies, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Stephen Hyden, author of Your Favorite Band is Killing Me and Twilight of the Gods. His new book is This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century, which is published by our friends at Hachette Books. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Steve, I have to state that we are talking on the phone instead of in person on a book tour or some such thing, because here we are seven months into a pandemic that has been horribly, horribly mismanaged from all sides in the United States. Uh, the party line, the party here being Americans, is what strange times. No one could see could have seen this coming, right? Uh, but as Radiohead fans, Steve, isn't our answer wrong? We've seen this coming for years. I mean... How has being a lifelong Radiohead fan prepared you to navigate these times? Well, man, I can't say that listening to Radiohead prepared me for, for 2020. You know, I, I, this is such a strange year. Mm-hmm. It'd be hard to say that uh, anything could prepare you for it. But in reference to Kid A, and this is something I write about in the book, that there is something in that record that seems to be pointing toward what the mood of the early part of the 21st century was going to be like in the book i call it that album the overture of the 21st century Mm -hmm. uh just the sense of doom and paranoia and i think the sense of i think disconnection that you hear in the lyrics i mean the lyrics of that record were consciously constructed in a way where it wouldn't have a literal meaning you know they were put together in sort of a random way and and, and that was the intention that Tom York had because he didn't want to be tied to sort of literal themes in the way that he had been when they put out their 1997 record OK Computer but it's funny because you know we now live in an age where all of us are being inundated with data from all sides on Mm -hmm. the internet Uh, and I think our brains have been rewired to take in all this information and to make up our own context for it. Uh, you know, cause that's the only way that you can really live. You, you have to make sense of insanity. You have to make it seem normal in your brain or else, uh, you go crazy yourself. So I think in a way what Radiohead was doing on this record, bringing in all these sort of different elements and all this random, and chaos really uh, into the music it seems so much more normal now I think Kid A seemed like a radical record to a lot of people in 2000 but now it sounds like classic rock you know and I think it's because the world itself is so chaotic uh, and we've all been sort of forced to make sense of it in our own way right thank you and now let's take it back to our first exposure to this band Radiohead, you thank MTV Buzzbin for exposing you to Radiohead's first single, Creep. My first exposure was also through MTV, but specifically through Beavis and Butthead, uh, when Beavis sort of majestically um, gets way into Johnny Greenwood's guitar kachunk before the chorus of the song. Uh, many of our younger listeners may not be aware that MTV ever played music. Uh, how important, Steve, was MTV? TV and both the kicking off of Radiohead's career and in maintaining the longevity of this career specifically through the release of OK Computer. 
I mean, I think it was it was hugely important. I mean, it was, it was important for Radiohead, and it was important for pretty much everyone of that era. You know, radio. I mean, uh, you know, MTV was the biggest radio station in America, and of course, this was before the internet. Really, you know, the idea of going online and listening to music and discovering artists that way, which is now so ingrained in how. You, you know, we, we think of music as music fans, but, you know, back then, there wasn't the internet, there was MTV. And instead of being on the internet all day, you were, you were watching MTV all day. Especially if you were like me, uh, you know, as a teenager uh, in the middle of the country. So um, it's really interesting with Radiohead because I feel like the way that we think of them now um, is so different than how they were perceived when they first came out. And a lot of how they're perceived now I think it really begins with Kip A. You know, the, the, the stereotype about Radiohead being this sort of like intellectual band or a band that, you know, it's hard to understand um, is, and is inaccessible. You know, I, that's, a, that's a stereotype that goes back to Kip A. I mean, that was like their first like truly kind of difficult record. But if you go back to the era of Creep and when they were a big MTV band, they were really perceived as like a one-hit wonder, essentially. Like one of the many bands that came out in that era that were looked at as writing Nirvana's coattails, you know? Like this, this generation of like alternative grunge rock bands that were going to be here today and gone tomorrow. And it really took Radiohead a couple of albums to get over that... Um, perception in the media like like how critics wrote about them you know even their second record the bands which i think now is looked at as being this classic record of the time if you read reviews of it from rolling stone and spin when that record came out critics are pretty dismissive of the bands and it's really coming at it from the perspective of like looking at radiohead as this band that's like past their sell-by date you know they had their hit now it's time for you to go it's time for you to go the way of you know the gym blossoms and uh cracker and you know all the big you know alternative bands that were that were popular for about 15 minutes back then um and it really wasn't until okay computer where no one could deny at that point that this was going to be a significant band and then of course Kid A comes after that Kid A is sort of like you know the record where you're following up this enormous hit and this instant classic and it's like well what do you do now and that's an exciting place for a band to be in but it can also be uh, a bit paralyzing you know and I think Radiohead dealt with both of those emotions at that time yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And Radiohead used to sell t-shirts and posters with the slogan, you are a target market printed on them. And I think this is an interesting slogan for a band that has positioned themselves as being anti-sloganeering. It is also a remarkable feat of anti-capitalist marketing, which of course is an Orwellian term in and of itself, um, anti-capitalist marketing, Patriot Act, etc. Uh, with this frame, you are a target market. I would like to talk about the pop culture of the time in the years surrounding Kid A's 
release. You mentioned The Matrix, Fight Club, and Vanilla Sky, and all of these are films that I was really into at the time. You, of course, go into a lot of detail about Fight Club uh, specifically late in the book. What do these things, Kid A, Fight Club, The Matrix, Vanilla Sky, signal to others about our target market? Who are we that these works of art and popular culture speak to us and spoke to us in the way that they do and did? Well, yeah, the, the reason I wrote about all those things in the book is that I felt like Kid A came out of a moment that was very much a turn-of-the-century moment. Um, thinking about, you know, the end of the 90s, going into this new era, you know, there was a lot of excitement about that again, but there was a lot of anxiety, and, and some of it was tied up in <clears throat> Y2K, which is something that really no one thinks about now, and if they do, it's it's like a punchline you know it, we, we look at it as this thing that people overreacted about back then but in the moment i mean there really was a legitimate fear that there was going to be this sort of techno apocalypse you know once the year 2000 began and you can see that in the movie fight club you know where in a way that film was arguing that a techno apocalypse might be a good thing you know that it could be a way for us to restart ourselves and to, uh, you know, return to a different kind of life. And the connection between that film and Radiohead is that OK Computer was a big part of the production of that film. You know, Brad Pitt and Edward Norton would listen to OK Computer on a loop while they were filming that. And they actually wanted Tom York to do the to do the score for, for Fight Club. And he declined, of course, because he was in the midst of trying to figure out the next Radiohead record, which was going to be Kid A. And, but you can hear some of those same sorts of, you know, you know the, the anti-consumerism that is in Fight Club. And, and also, you know, bringing up The Matrix and, and Vanilla Sky, you know, those films are very much about sort of how technology and sort of the facade of like modern civilization conceal greater truths just below the surface and if you can somehow get past all that subterfuge you know whether it's technology or it's or it's just you know i guess the systems that are in place that that keep us deluded if you can get past that then there's somehow some greater truth underneath that that you can get to and i think that's also something that very much existed in radiohead's music as well and i think also existed with kid a um what's interesting to me about that era really is that you know, now people talk about Kid A as being this like sort of prescient record about the internet. You know, that it was like a warning about the internet. But I really feel like in the year 2000 that there were people, and myself included, who look at the internet as like a savior in a way. Like that you could go on the internet and that was a place where you could find these deeper truths. Because in those days, the internet was more of like the Wild West. It seemed like an area outside of corporate culture. And for a band like Radiohead, you know, they were among the first major bands that like really harnessed that medium as a way to connect with fans. And, you know, they streamed Kid A before it came out, which was an incredible thing for a band of their stature to do. You know, they were posting journals about the making of the record. Uh, they had a much more sort of one-to-one relationship with their fans because of the internet. And of course, you know, what we've seen in the last 20 years is that the internet has been corporatized and homogenized and now feels like a much more oppressive place and it's funny because in a way Kid A when you listen to it it feels more like the internet 
of 2020 than it does of the year 2000. You know, this is one of the many sort of, again, like things that they could not have intended when they made the record, but nonetheless feel true uh, when you listen to it. All right. Thank you so much, Steve. And now I would like to walk our listeners from the release of Creep and Pablo Honey, the album that contained it up to Kid A. First things first, Pablo Honey is a great album, an underrated album by Radiohead standards. Uh, The production quality is extremely okay, uh, as is most first albums by bands with longevity. I'm also thinking of the Tennessee Fire by My Morning Jacket right now. Um, The guitar work on Pablo Honey is top notch, as you will hear if you've listened to any bootlegs that feature live performances of these tracks. Steve, my question about Pablo Honey is, out of all the tracks that you pontificate on from this album, and I fully endorse said pontification, why do you not mention Blowout? Do I not mention Blowout? No, you don't. Oh, man. I don't know why I didn't do that. Uh, I should have done that. That's a great song. That's like the last song it's sort of like the most sort of like sonic youth pixies sounding track on there it's like where they really just sort of devolve into this great guitar noise that's a great song you know i guess um i have to write a book about pablo honey just so i can now <laughs> you know pontificate about blowout i mean i think my i think the point of writing about pablo honey in the book because for starters like you know i'm talking about kid a in this book but it also ends up being a book about Radiohead's entire career Mm. and looking at it really through the lens of Kid A looking at that record as being a full crumb in their career and looking at how their albums after it were shaped by that album and, and how the albums before it lead up to it and you know I agree with you I really love Pablo Honey and you know it's looked at now as being like one of the worst Radiohead records I think because people feel like they evolved pretty dramatically after that um, and really kind of developed their own sound. I mean, I suspect Tom York himself would, would probably say that it's the worst Radiohead record too. But you're right. I think that if you listen to that record and you just appreciate it on its own terms, um, I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's a really fun record. And I think you can hear the seeds of the band that they're going to become on that record because while they definitely become more sophisticated in their songwriting and in their production, Radiohead at their core, to me, is a band that, even when they're being difficult on a record like Kid A, they are a heart-on-their-sleeves type band. They're a band that I think is about delivering a powerful emotion. You know, they go for the heart, I think, more than the head which again it goes against that stereotype of Radiohead which I think is not really accurate this idea that they're this sort of cerebral band not to say that there aren't great ideas in their music or that you can't think about it but I think at at core what you respond to when you listen to Radiohead or if you see them live is the emotion of it and the the power of Tom York's voice, the power of those melodies, the, the way that those guys who have been playing together for so long can lock in together and create this enormous sound. Um, that is what has punched their ticket as a band. Like, that is why people 
are so obsessive about them because they make you feel a certain kind of way and that exists on pablo honey and it it's just that they i think in a way like kid a was about making the emotionalism a little less obvious you know uh obscuring it a little bit making it so it wasn't hitting you over the head but maybe it didn't hit you until like the 10th listen but that doesn't mean it's not there and once you connect with it i think it does deliver a pretty strong emotional wallop right thank you and um their next album the bends uh one of the greatest albums of all time as are most of the albums we will talk about for the remainder of this interview i saw a bit of a leap in songwriting craft and production value for radiohead and i want to pick two songs and ask how these two songs signaled radiohead's way forward to kid a because you can sort of group pablo honey and the bends together but radiohead was a different band after the bends um and the two songs i will ask about are uh black star which was the first song that was engineered by nigel godrich and planet telix how steve did these two songs on the bends hint at what was to come well, I mean, he mentioned Black Star. He mentioned the relationship with Nigel Godrich, and that's obviously a, a huge development in, in Radiohead's career. You know, their first two records, they worked with different producers, and then from OK Computer on, Nigel Godrich ends up being essentially the sixth member of Radiohead, and he was a huge part of the Kid A and Nijak sessions. So. You know, I think that's the obvious thing there. You know, Planetelix, I don't know if there's like a direct sort of line that I would make other than I guess it's sort of like a reactionary sort of way. I mean, the, the big thing with Kid A, I think, going into that record for Tom York is that he had really grown tired of his own voice. You know, there's an epigraph in my book where he says, something like you know, I'm annoyed by how pretty my voice is mm-hmm. and the sound of his voice was such a crucial part of um, those first three Radiohead records and it really starts to blossom on the bends like that's where you really start to hear like the Jeff Buckley influence uh, that was significant for him at that time and you know like a song like Fake Plastic Trees for instance I think is like the epitome of like that early time York operatic beautiful you know high tenor voice and by the end of the 90s that vocal style had become a cliche essentially of british rock there were a lot of singers aping that and i think tom york felt that if he were to sing like that then there really wouldn't be anything differentiating him from like all the other bands that came up and we're basically just emulating like the Benz and OK Computer. So I think for Kid A, it was important that he not sound so much like himself. He wanted to digitally alter his voice. He wanted to bury his voice more in the mix um, and not have those you know, sort of grand arena rock moments that you get on the bends and OK Computer. So, I mean, to me, it's almost like, when I listen to Kid A, I feel like it's almost like a reaction against the bends in a lot of ways, as great as that record is. Um, you know, them not wanting to go back there, essentially, on, on, on their new record. 
Right, thank you. And um, their next album, OK Computer, of course, uh, I think when it came out, it was probably most compared to Dark Side of the Moon by critics. Um, And this is the album where Radiohead became less of a band who writes songs than a band who writes albums. Uh, Where were you when you first heard OK Computer and what were your immediate thoughts? Uh, well, I was 19 when that album came out. I remember buying it um, either the day it came out or maybe like a day or two after. I didn't have a car then, so I had to like ride my bike still to the uh, record store. Mm. Um, or I think I had a moped or something. Maybe I took the moped. or I, I'd have to borrow a car anyway to, to go anywhere. Um, and I, you know, the first song I would have heard would have been Paranoid Android because that was the first single. There was a, there was a video... You know this classic animated video that came out, um, you know, a, a bit before the record, and I loved Paranoid Android. Um, I mean, and that was a pretty mind-blowing song. You know, just being this multi-part, almost like prog rock song um, that just built again to an incredible peak. You know, just just gorgeous. And I remember, I mean, you know, OK Computer. I loved it pretty much immediately. I just thought, like you said. It felt like my generation's Dark Side of the Moon or Pet Sounds or, you know, not that it sounded like those records. Because really, like, Radiohead, they don't really sound like Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, I don't think that sonically it's the same. I think people make that comparison because there's a sci-fi element to a degree to OK Computer. You know, there's songs about, like, aliens and, uh, you know... The androids and and all that stuff. There's sort of like a futuristic feel to it, which is somewhat the case of Dark Side of the Moon. Although, I mean, on Dark Side of the Moon, that's clearly a metaphor for the human experience. It's not really set in space. Any of the songs on that record, I don't think. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, it, it was just one of those records that, like, I think we all have. If you're a music fan, we all have those records that you heard between, say you know, 15 and 21 that just stick with you for the rest of your life, you know, because they hit you because they're great and they hit you at a very formative time. And OK Computer is among like the handful of albums that I would say uh, really had an impact on me at that time. And it's probably still my favorite Radiohead record for that reason. Um, I mean, there's a difference between saying favorite and best, I think. and best, I think, is is much more of a debate. But for me, like, you know, just in terms of like being a sentimental favorite, OK Computer is, is always going to be number one, I think. Mm-hmm. Right on. Thank you, Steve. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I'll be right back with Stephen Hyden. One man, one sauce, one desire to take your taste buds on a journey of a lifetime. Introducing Bernie Wilde's Adventure Sauce. Be ready to experience a rush of excitement, a hint of danger, a plethora of anticipation, an abundance in flavor, a possibility of romance. Hey, 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 I got this. Hi, folks. Mike Rosado here, host of the Pencil Pushers Podcast. I wanted to take a moment to share with you a new heat sauce that some of my friends and I have created called, that's right, Bernie Wilde's 
Adventure Sauce. The all-purpose condiment sauce with a kick you've been waiting for. Bernie Wilds was made to put excitement back into your kitchen. It's perfect for tossing into salads and pastas, drizzling on burgers, tacos, and takeout, or just straight up dipping. Not only is Bernie Wilds Adventure Sauce packed full of flavor, it's also vegan, gluten-free, and made with no preservatives or stabilizers, making it good for you, good for the environment, and hands down delicious. But as ready as we are to share it with you in the world, we still need the funds to get it into production and onto your plate. We've got a 30-day Kickstarter running from October 14th through November 13th, and with your help, we can get it done. Just go to BernieWiles.com and sign up for our mailing list to be the first Bernie backer. That's B-U-R-N-Y-W-I-L-D-S.com as we take our maiden voyage of Bernie Wilds Adventure Song. I'm back with Stephen Hyde, an author of This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the beginning of the 21st century, which is published by our friends at Hachette. Stephen, you write of the years surrounding the release of Kid A and its sister album Amnesiac. Uh, quote, so much of what would come to define the early years of the 21st century, 9-11, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the global economic meltdown, extreme political polarization, the proliferation of social media hadn't happened yet when Kid A was released. The month after Kid A came out, George W. Bush and Al Gore faced off in one of the closest and most contentious elections in U.S. history. In the end, the candidate who lost the popular vote, Bush, was declared the winner by the Supreme Court, the first in a series of destabilizing events that undermined the public's belief in justice, truth, and even a shared reality. Over time, the concept of alternate time lines coexisting in the same realm would no longer be a trope of science fiction it would be a mundane tenet of daily life end quote steve can you take us back in time to late 2000 early 2001 uh tell us what's going on in the world and how kid a became the soundtrack to that era and even sort of dictated how many of us felt about the events we were witnessing yeah i mean you know well you know like i wrote in that passage you read Right after Kid A comes out, you have the U.S. election, Bush v. Gore, which ends up being this you know long, protracted battle that goes on for a couple months. And um, again, it's interesting because you know I think when Kid A came out, there was a sense among some critics, like if you read the reviews at the time, that Radiohead were basically just being needlessly negative you know that they were just dwelling on depressing subjects that there was almost a pretentiousness to what they were doing um i think especially in the british press Mm -hmm. there was a lot of skepticism about radiohead and there's sort of like i think people rolling their eyes at the idea of like a record being orwellian in the year 2000 um and you have to remember that, like, the 90s were, like, relatively smooth, you know? I mean, there, it was a time of, like, a fair amount of peace and prosperity. Um, I think people felt like they knew what the world was and, and how it was defined. And it, you know, obviously, there were a lot of problems back then, too. But um, I think there was sort of, like, a numbing familiarity to life. Um and almost as soon as Kid A comes out, all these things start happening that are just going to wipe away that sense of familiarity. And I think 
that election, you know, I mean, I had never been part of an election before where the person who won the popular vote lost. You know, it just seemed incredible to me. And of course, now it's happened twice Mm -hmm. in the last 20 years, which still seems extraordinary to me. But in some way, it's like we're just used to it. Like in 2020, when we think about this election, um, you know, if we were just worried about the popular vote, I think there'd be a lot less uh, anxiety. If you, if, at least if you are hoping that the current president doesn't win, you know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't, I don't think people would really be worried if it were just about the popular vote, but there's this electoral college issue, which, you know, makes it seem a little bit closer. Um, I never thought in those terms in 2000. I mean, I was pretty young. I was only 22, but the idea that that, that could happen just seemed inconceivable. And then, of course, you have 9-11, which occurs, um, you know, 11 months later. Although it's funny because when people talk about Kid A now, 9-11 is a part of the narrative mm-hmm. of that record. I feel like a lot of people think of it as a 9-11 album uh although even though again it came out like almost a year before that album uh there was that famous chuck klosterman riff where he talks about that album um you know i i don't want to say predict because i feel like that's what it was turned into i think that post i think his thing was turned into like a reddit post where they said that it predicted 9-11 but i think what he was saying is that the record in a way went with the rhythms of that day that if you you know listen almost like a perverse version of that like wizard of oz dark side of the moon sync up you know that in some way the arc of that album feels like the arc of september 11th from the quiet of the morning to the chaos of the attack to the devastation in the aftermath uh, and then of course that leads to the wars that we had Afghanistan and Iraq fought under these pretenses of you know WMDs that don't exist you know and it's just all these events start occurring where you know there's just so much distrust of what reality is kind of going back to what we were saying before talking about like the Matrix and Vanilla Sky these films that are uh, really kind of questioning like what is the nature of reality like what is the gap between what we see and what is actually going on and that goes from being a topic of films to just being something that we take as a matter of course in the you know like in the middle of the day i think now in 2020 i feel like we're all cynical now I, i don't think anyone really takes anything at face value we all believe that someone is lying or someone is trying to trick us. Um, we all, seems like we all believe that there's like greater conspiracies that are acting against this, like whether you're on the left or the right. I mean, that seems to have infected everybody. It's just that we have different boogeymen that are haunting us. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really think that destabilization, it seems like it really kind of begins for this century around that time and it just devolves from there uh, you know step by step mm-hmm. right thank you so much and um, what about the multiple timelines you're referencing is this a Berenstein Bears thing no I mean I think again I think it's just kind of going with the uh, the idea of different realities existing at once you know and I think that's something that we all feel now 
where depending on what social media silo you're in, you are in a completely different reality from people that might live next door to you, you know? Um, And which I think if you step back and you look at it, it looks like a nightmare. You know, it looks like an incredible science fiction dystopian nightmare, but it is our reality. I mean, that is the way it is now. And um, yeah, I don't know how you reconcile that. I mean, I'm I'm not smart enough to figure that out. That that, that just seems to be the way it is at the moment. Yeah. And I think again, um, that record I think just captures the feeling of that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't predict it. It just captures the feeling of it. I think in a way that I can't think of another piece of art doing quite as evocatively. You know, I feel like Kid A to me, that's why to me, you know, there's there's bigger albums in terms of record sales. There's albums that I would say are more influential than Kid A, but in terms of like a record that I would say sums up the last 20 years, I can't think of a better record than Kid A. I mean, that's the one for me. Right, thank you. And Steve, let's talk about internet technology for a moment. You alluded to this a bit earlier, but specifically Napster. Um, Like you, I think, I spent many hours a day, uh, weeks, months, etc., downloading songs, uh, Radiohead's B-sides, and bootlegs amongst them. Sometimes, as you write, you would download a track for hours only to find out that it was filler content or the wrong song or band completely. Uh, Tree Fingers for Kid A's ambient filler content, for example, or um, Sweet Fish Covered Gin and Juice. I'll download that only to find out that it's not fish at all. Um, How did internet technology at this moment of time affect how music was experienced in general and how Kid A was experienced specifically? Well, I think for Radiohead fans, again, you know, this was among the first major albums that could be streamed before it came out. So the idea that you could hear a record three weeks before it was released, which I think now that's been demystified completely um but at the time i mean that was incredible and i think in general the excitement of that time with the internet if you were a music fan was this idea that anything that you could possibly want to hear you could have access to you know which um was truly revolutionary i mean i i know for myself as a music fan back then it was not uncommon to read about an album in a book and imagine what it sounded like and not actually hear it for like a year or two afterward. You know, like that happened to me all the time back then. And, you know, it might not be until I saw that particular record randomly in a record store, if it was at the library or something, that I would finally hear it. And sometimes, you know, the record that you imagined was a lot better than the record that you heard. I mean, just imagine having like a two-year buildup to hearing a classic record. I mean, it was a lot of anticipation back then. But, you know, with Internet and Napster, you'll be able to download all this music. I remember just brainstorming lists of albums that I'd heard about this, but never actually heard, Mm -hmm. and just punching them in and seeing them come up and downloading them and spending like all night long uh, just just downloading stuff. And I think at some point it just became about accumulation. Mm-hmm. You know, like you weren't even chasing music, you were chasing the thrill of them having music. Mm-hmm. And 
and just hoarding all these music files, some of which you might not have even listened to ever. Um, but of course, you know, now that is also totally changed um, because, you know, we're in the streaming era, era, obviously. I mean, you know, someone should write this book. I think it's a really interesting period of time the mp3 era because i feel like we're already past it mm-hmm. you know the, the, like the downloading music era because now you know you had the physical format era you have the mp3 era but it now looks like the mp3 era was really just about it was like a midwife essentially into the streaming era you know like now we're streaming most people are streaming they don't it's like if you could stream music why would you download it? You, you know, there, there's no point. Like, there's people that buy physical records now, and that makes sense because that's a different product from just streaming something. But, like, downloading something versus streaming it, um, unless you're downloading something off of a blog that isn't available to stream, it doesn't really make any sense. So I, that whole, that's like a interesting window of time. It's about a decade uh, where that mattered. Um, anyway, I'm going on a tangent here, but um, yeah, I mean, Radiohead again in Kid A, it was right at the beginning of all this. I mean, there was no iTunes mm-hmm. when Kid A came out, obviously, no streaming platforms. But we were at a point where I think music fans were starting to go online as the primary way that they were going to hear music, learn about music, read about it music um you know we were going from like a magazine culture to like a website culture and in the book i write about pitchfork's review of kid a and how that was really the first viral review that pitchfork ever had as much as things went viral back then i mean it's obviously a different standard uh, for 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 things going viral but um you know that was the review that a lot of people read it was like the first thing that they read on Pitchfork. And of course, Pitchfork has, you know, they went on to be the most important music publication of the last 20 years. You know, and, and Kid A is like the beginning of that. So that's like another sort of nexus point that Kid A is at, at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, that is going to be kind of pointing forward uh, as far as like what's going to be happening in the early 21st century. Right. Thank you. And, um, I want to come back to technology in a moment, but first I want to ask you, because Kid A and Amnesiac were recorded right before the 2000 American presidential elections in 9-11, they were not able to make an overtly a political statement, at least uh, as far as Radiohead does such a thing, until they recorded the follow-up, Hail to the Thief. Uh, this, I think, is an album that you aren't sure what to think about, and I think I'm exactly where you are with it. Why is this album so much different than and the four albums that came before it, and how is it most similar to Pablo Honey? Well, I mean, it's um, it's discussed as a political record, but I, I, I really don't think it is. I mean, I think other than the first track, mm-hmm. like two plus two equals five, is a song that like is directly referencing George Orwell, and it feels the most like a song about the political climate of that time. Um, but the rest of the record really isn't like that. And Tom York himself took pains in interviews at the time to sort of distance Radiohead from that. Yeah, and, and really, I mean, it's like Radiohead... 
And it's on fault too. And they call the album Hail the Thief. And the album cover has all these buzzwords that were sort of associated with, you know, government speak at that time. So, I mean, it's not a reach to, to look at it that way. But I think in terms of the actual record, I don't think it is really all that political. I think the significance of it for Radiohead was that that was their attempt to get back to making more of a straightforward rock record that after working on Kid A and Amnesiac for the better part of two years, they wanted to make an album quickly. And they wanted to make an album that really harnessed their power as a live band. Because they found that when they had toured behind Kid A and Amnesiac, if you listen to bootlegs of that time, they really found a way to make those songs sound like rock songs. Mm -hmm. Even a song like the title track from Kid A, which is like maybe as far into electronic music as they ever got on that album there's a sense of grandeur when they play it live that uh i love the live version i think i love it more than the studio version mm-hmm. um, but it is more of a rock song when they play it live than it is on the record um so yeah i think hail the thief it really was them trying to be a rock band and i think they had mixed feelings about it afterward just because I really love that record, but it is a little bit too long, probably. I, you know, it, it could have been edited maybe a little bit more. Um, and I think, you know, Radiohead being perfectionist, I think they felt that if they had spent a little bit more time on it, then it might have come out a little bit better. But I don't know. I, I, I appreciate that aspect of it. I think Radiohead sometimes can deliberate a little bit too long on their record. So it's nice to have one that was maybe made a little quicker again. Right, thank you so much. And um, Radiohead, Steve, as you argue very successfully, is a band that can still demand headlines, both in publications and at festivals, because they have successfully managed to cross generations. Uh, You and I are both technically in the gap between Generation X and Millennials, and as such... um, Radiohead kind of came at us from both sides, but you say that Millennials came to Radiohead through their seventh album in Rainbows. And hearkening back to my question about Kid A and technology, how did technology affect how In Rainbows was procured, listened to, and digested? And where does In Rainbows rank amongst Radiohead's other masterpieces? Well, I mean, the big narrative with In Rainbows was the fact that they that Radiohead released it um, as an independent act, they weren't on a record label at the time, and they posted it for free as a pay-what-you-want uh, release. So if you wanted to pay $10 for it, you could. If you wanted to pay nothing, you could do that too, and you could get it for free. And this was part of the moment in the record industry where... The, the, the industry was really in free fall at this point. This was like uh, 2007. And, um, you know, people weren't buying records as much. And, and piracy was really running rampant. And I think from Radiohead's perspective, there was this feeling of like, well, maybe we'll just do it ourselves now. Like, you know, maybe we can harness that dream that we had of the internet where we can really have, again, this one to one relationship with our fans. And, you know, we respect our fans and, and we feel like if we give them a record that they will pay for it. And, um, and we don't have to have someone in the middle. Uh, we, don't have to, we don't need a record label. We don't need iTunes to be the middleman. And of course, what happens, um, I think the following year, Spotify started in 2008. 
I think that's right. I think it's like late aughts. Spotify started, mm. and Spotify, of course, eventually becomes, in a way, the savior of the music industry because money is up again now in the music industry, at least for the record labels. Not not so much for artists, unfortunately, um, but it also kills this dream essentially that Tom York has about having a one-to-one relationship because now Spotify is going to be in the middle and Spotify is going to be the one sucking up a lot of the money and Radiohead for a long time resisted putting their records on Spotify you know which is a pretty dramatic about face for a band that in many ways was ahead of the curve technology wise for a lot of bands and now they're lagging behind deliberately they're dragging their feet because they don't really want to be a part of this new age. But of course, like everyone else who dragged their feet, like all the other bands that didn't want to be on Spotify, Radiohead eventually gave in because, you know, the centrifugal force of the audience, I think, forced them to do that. I mean, we're at a time now where if you're not on Spotify, for like 98% of music listeners, your music doesn't exist. And they're not going to go outside of it. It's in a lot of ways, it's the same as Netflix. Like if your movie isn't on Netflix, people will not rent it. You know, they won't go to a different platform to see it. Uh, most people, it's like whatever's on Netflix, that's what exists. And um, and in the book, I just kind of make note of that being another instance of like the internet becoming a smaller place. I think um, that instead of going to like all these different blogs for music or you know maybe you buy something here and you go over there for the most part Spotify is like the one stop shop now for music mm. um, and I use Spotify too so I'm not just purely demonizing it or anything I mean but that's just the way it is and um, so in a way that's a loss I think Although there's a lot of great things about Spotify too. So, you know, that dream that I had as a teenager that I could have access to all this music at the tip of my fingertips, Spotify delivers that and they do it in a very, on a very nice platform. It's very easy to use. Um, it's just not as exciting <laughs> as it was. It's just, you know, the, the extraordinary has become ordinary in this instance. I, am, I guess that's, that's just what happens with technology, though. We all get used to these conveniences uh, at some point. All right. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Um, I could talk to you about this book all day long and probably for several more days, but I don't want to keep you too much longer, so I'm going to skip over The King of Limbs. Uh, but I do want to ask you two more quick questions. The first about a moon-shaped pool. Um, I have a friend, Mike Ray, who claims from time to time that a moon-shaped pool is Radiohead's best album. Uh, you seem to think that it is more of an album that features Radiohead in their comfort zones as elder statesmen of rock and roll. Uh, the album does feature several old tracks, but I think you can say that out of any of their albums from Kid A forward. Um, can you just let us know what your general thoughts about a moon-shaped pool are and kind of where they are in their career right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a beautiful record. I mean, I'll say this about Radiohead. I don't think they have any bad albums. Mm. You know, King of Limbs is like among my least favorite, but mm. I think that's a good record. And I think especially when you hear the songs live, like I love like the bootlegs I have from that era um, sound great. Mm -hmm. I think um, so they don't have a bad record in their, in their collection I think what, the thing with Radiohead 
is after In Rainbows, they become a much different band and they feel less like a band, really. I think in the last dozen or so years. Um, you know, especially if you compare them from like, say, 92 to like from 92 to, to 2007, where basically they're putting out an album every two or three years and they're touring regularly and you feel like they're like a real working band and things just slow down pretty dramatically after that where there's only two albums uh you know in the last like dozen years or so and it's much more about solo projects with radiohead you know they occasionally tour but like not all that often um and you know it just makes me think about how bands these days don't really break up you know because you don't need to break up you can just take a long break you know and then you can come back and you can tour and you can make a lot of money and then you can go off and do your own thing again and you can always go back to the mothership uh and enjoy the spoils of that um really happy the best of both worlds like tom york can do his own records uh and then he can work with radiohead every now and then and that's what radiohead feels like to me now like i feel like they're it's like this great brand it's this great mothership um that all the people can go back to and occasionally revive and i say that without cynicism you know i think um i think there's a lot of healthiness to that i think that you know the fact that they are one of the rare bands where it's all the original members um i think speaks really well to them i think it speaks to why they're such a powerful unit when they come back together and it also speaks to how i'm sure they're able to give each other space you know they're because these guys they're middle-aged guys now you know they're not teenagers anymore i mean just think about yourself and like the people that you were friends with when you were 15 maybe you're still friends with them but probably not i mean most people aren't you know so to be in your 50s and to still have a relationship with these people that you grew up with essentially you know that that says a lot and i think to make that happen at this point you you probably just you you can't be working as hard as you did (laughs) like when you were when you were younger so you know i think with radiohead their brand is so strong and it's so respected and um they're a band that you still feel like if they put out a a record next week that there's a chance that it could be great you know which again you don't think of i can't think of another 90s band certainly that i would say that about you know um yola tango i guess would be another one i mean there's probably some other ones but radiohead among bands of their stature that have had tremendous, huge, multi-platinum success. Um, you know, I think they've been able to sort of conserve their energy in recent years where when they do come back together, you feel like greatness is still possible. Absolutely. Um, and along those lines, Steve, finally, um, I have always felt like Radiohead was working towards 10 albums uh, for multiple reasons, some numerological, also because then they would be, uh, I believe, equaling Led Zeppelin's output. But after the era of 
Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, fingers crossed, knock on wood. And after the onset of COVID-19 and all of the civil rights issues that we're experiencing right now, what do you predict for Album 10? Do you think it will address these things uh, head-on, cryptically, or not at all? I mean, I'd be shocked if, like, Radiohead made a record that directly addressed anything like that I just don't think that's their style um, and I should say Time York specifically um, I mean there's just really nothing in their career that suggests that they would ever you know make a song about Donald Trump that had like his name in the song or that referenced Black Lives Matter or something I, I can't imagine that um, you know I think again the power of a record like today is that it's not on the nose you know there's not songs about the internet where they talk about the internet there's no songs really that are talking about the dangers of technology or uh, you know uh, I mean they point to things in their iconography but like in the actual songs they don't really do that and I think that's why it holds up so well because it's really about creating a mood and a vibe that goes deeper that goes beyond words that goes beyond rhetoric or you know these like or like like polemics um i think when songwriters go that route it doesn't really last you know um even someone like bob dylan who wrote you know some of the most famous protest songs ever i think that songs these finger pointing songs as they were called back then um i'm gonna be stuck in this era you know i'm gonna be stuck in the 60s you know i need to write something that isn't quite so literal that can speak to people on an emotional level more than an intellectual level and i and again i think that's where radiohead operates um and it's why kid a i think is so powerful because there's something in that record that communicates something to the audience that a lot of people i think understand but it's not really something that you can articulate. Um, I, I tend to think that the best things in music can't be articulated with words. You know, I think it generally goes beyond words to something deeper and more expressive. Um, so I would expect Radiohead to reflect the times, but not to pontificate about the times, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for your time. This is exactly the book that I wanted to read right now. Listeners, I've been speaking with Stephen Hyde, an author of This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century, which is published by our friends at Hachette Books. You can purchase... This Isn't Happening from www.quailridgebooks.com and have it shipped to you for free. Steve, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Stephen Hyden for joining me. Copies of This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the beginning of the 21st century can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Bernie Wilds Adventure Sauce. They have their Kickstarter going right now. There's a couple more weeks left. Head on over to BernieWilds.com and support these guys. Get some delicious sauce on your table. 
My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.